Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we've got many, many bricks in the wall of worry. Now let's add another one, geopolitical concerns, another significant headwind for this market to digest. Let's see how the pros are doing it. Tracy McMillian, Global Head of Asset Allocation Strategy at Wells Fargo. So Tracy, you think about this stuff on a global scale. We now have a hot war in Europe. Um, how does that factor into your calculus as you talk to your clients about where to allocate capital on a global scale? Yes, uh, we, we certainly have had to make um, some adjustments here, but what we are telling clients, telling investors, is that amid this uncertainty that is certainly being compounded by uh, the war in Europe, to make sure that they're going back to basics, thinking about what their risk tolerance is, what their time horizon is, and making sure that that does align with their allocations. A short-term uh, horizon means they should probably be holding more cash here, probably more short-term fixed income. And a longer-term horizon, um, a more uh, aggressive risk tolerance, those investors might want to start dollar cost averaging in. Um, we are down 10% or, or more in some equities markets globally. So it might be a good time to, uh, you know, break their cash into different buckets and start dollar cost averaging into equities, especially if they're below their longer term target. And where would you go? I mean, in terms of sectors, what do you think is a good place to buy undervalued right now? And what do you think has run too far too fast? And is still yeah, overvalued? So because there's still a lot of big valuations out there. There are, absolutely. And, you know, one of the places that, that we're looking right now is information technology and communication services. So those growth areas where we see very high quality earnings, we also still like financials because even though rates have come in here, um, as we've seen a flight to quality, we do think that the trend is higher in interest rates. So we think that uh, financials have uh, you know, come down in price, the valuations look good there, and, uh, you know, through the course of the next 6 to 18 months, we see some value there. Um, where we would stay away, we'd stay away from things uh, that are more defensive. So, you know, think of utilities um, and also um, consumer staples. Consumer staples, we think, are going to be hit very hard by additional commodities inflation. So those are two areas. Speaking where of. Would, uh, Speaking of yes. Tracy, commodities inflation, look at your oil chart right now. Unbelievable. I mean, Greg Jarrett was just telling me that the IEA is going to deploy emergency oil stockpiles. Um, but how much can they really deploy, Mr. Market asked, and bid it up 8%. So now uh, WTI is trading at $103.40 a barrel. Brent is up at one oh five thirty. Um it's just amazing to watch these gains in oil. Whatever happened to energy? Paul, aren't we energy independent? I thought we were. I thought we were all going green. Tracy, have I missed the energy trade? Uh, 
oil is certainly much higher than we originally thought going into this year, but things uh, have changed. And the war in Europe is making a tight commodities market even tighter. Um, So the off-ramp to lower inflation, we think, uh, could be prolonged. And a big part of that uh, inflation is going to be that commodities markets, and that is across the commodities complex, are going to continue to be pressured higher. If we get this kind of inflation continuing, you're going to have to be Tracy McBillion. (laughs) I saw what you did there. But it was unfair. I'm sure you hear that all the time. Matt will be here all week, folks. I I looked it up, and McMillian, it's apparently an old Scottish name referring to, I guess, the offspring of a bald man. Or maybe it's a Gaelic, like a a monastery or a community of Gaelic monks. What do you think, Tracy? I mean, it's a perfect name for wealth management, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I have heard from my clients um, that I should be Tracy McBillian, so I, I'll have to look into that. <laughs> What's the, what are you going to look for from the State of the Union address tonight? What do you think the market's going to be paying attention to? So they're, they're certainly going to be uh, paying attention to any um, you know change in energy policy. I would say uh, you know do we need uh, to be focusing more on energy security? Um, over, you know, any climate objectives at this point. Um, so that that's certainly something we'll be looking for. We'll be looking for, um, you know, what the plans are at this point for Build Back Better. Uh, you know, is that still alive or are, are we moving on to other uh, initiatives? And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, another thing that we're, we're certainly going to be watching for is any change to our policy towards, um, you know, Russia or Ukraine. So, right. you know, three big things there. Absolutely. All right. I think a lot of folks should be tuning in here tonight. Tracy McMillian, although the Duke Pitt game is on tonight, so I'm going to have to go back and forth, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Tracy McMillian, head of global asset allocation strategy for Wells Fargo, giving us uh, her thoughts. Boy, looking at oil here, nine up 9% here, $104.40 a barrel. Let's break that down. Let's take a little bit of extra time and look at oil here. We can do that with Julia Fanzaris, Bloomberg News, Oil's Future Reporter, and Kriti Gupta, Bloomberg Markets Correspondent. Julia, what's going on today? Is this technical? What's going on? Why is this oil up 9%? It is not technical. It is all on the headlines right now. So starting off with the fact that traders are finally deciding that oil exports from Russia and energy supplies in general are going to be impacted by sanctions, even if it is indirectly. And today is the day where they're just realizing, okay, this is the moment that we have to start pricing this in more. And then we saw that the IEA decided to go and have a crude uh, tap into their crude releases for 60 million barrels, which at first you're like, okay, so maybe crude prices should have slowed down a bit but no supercharged the sorry i didn't push the but you know it supercharged the rally <laughs> unbelievable it did right? supercharge yeah. the rally and the reason is because traders are saying well that's not really that much compared to russian exports i think it's up to six days of russian it's more exports. than zero <laughs> it's more than zero right? but it's less Pretty, what in the heck is going on here i mean yeah. I get that you realize, oh, that's not very much. And wait, what? We use 20 million barrels a day here, 100 million barrels a day globally. Uh, but you knew that before this, right? And it's better than zero. Well, folks, you guys should really witness Matt Miller's face right now. His yeah, brain is, is exploding. Animated. His brain is exploding. We're not even talking cars yet. 
<laughs> I know. Let's not let's so not close. let's not open it's that so door. Uh, but to Julia's point, what's interesting here is, and I mean, it's everything that Julia said. I asked her this before we came on the show. Why is oil supercharged right now? Um, because nothing has really changed. But she makes a really good point on the sanctions bit of it, because that's the part that uh, I think a lot of people are looking at. Remember, the energy payments have been taken out of SWIFT for the moment or any transactions or any SWIFT actions that they might do. But I think the assumption here is that eventually that's going to change. So, yes, uh, you're right. 100% oil was soaring quite a bit before. But these headlines sometimes, if they're – you did see immediate drop on the headlines, which would be where your extra supply drops oil narrative comes from. But then you really have traders reconsider and it's kind of supercharged it. And that's a pretty normal thing to see for traders, not just in oil, True. but you see it in stock markets you too. You see it in all assets, right? Yeah. When when there's a sign that an incredibly large institution is all of a sudden freaking out, then traders go, whoa, we're going to run out of oil. Let's buy as much as we can right now. Exactly. And it was yeah. that knee-jerk reaction that from the IEA that then had the knee-jerk reaction in the crude markets. What's the futures markets? What are they telling you as, as you take a look at them now? Is this oil going to come down in price going forward or what? Oh, no. The futures market is saying quite the opposite. Oh, we're backward dated. So we are seeing that. Backwardation. Backwardation, yeah. And Def that Define that for me again because I'm an equity Of course. Guy. No, yeah. So that means that traders are paying more money to get their hands on barrels right now. Okay. And we're not seeing that go away because supply is tight and demand is high. So these prices are not going to go down anytime soon. OPEC, they're meeting tomorrow, and it looks like they're also going to continue with their 400,000 barrels wow. a day. And we know that they're not actually meeting that output. So still supplies are tight and demand is high every time oil gets to these prices or goes down dra drastically i have to relearn how to look at the the forward curve ct is a great way to do it. do you use ct also oh, on the bloomberg yeah. terminal uh i was using oman before and trying to figure it out from there but it's so difficult through the options market to yes. get to the contracts I, so I'm, you know, I don't think about it the right way, but if you use CT, you can actually, it's right there in front of you, Paul, um, on any, uh, I'm guessing on pretty much any commodities contract, you can just type CT go and. Critty, when are some of these oil companies in the shell patch going to say, I got I'm going to start drilling. Maybe. Yeah. Anne Marie told us just now that the, uh, Biden administration is reminding people there are 9,000 leases out there that haven't been used. Greg yeah. Jared at some point is just going to leave exactly <laughs> go wildcatting. Yeah, exactly. Well, it comes down to the point on backwardation, right? Because if you actually t listen to what some of these CEOs are saying, they're saying, well, yeah, we're in deep backwardation. Yeah, the spot prices are looking really good right now, but that's not sustainable. Remember, you have to look at the futures curve. And if you have all that demand right now, what are good people going to buy later? So a lot, of, uh, a lot of these American companies or American shale producers are looking for that backwardation to lessen just a little bit. So those spot prices aren't all your demand. Demand essentially isn't targeted in one point in time, and it's more of a longer-term play and production plan. Uh, to add some, Mike McGlone, a Bloomberg uh, Intelligence commodity strategist, he's saying we're going to see $50 oil in the not-too-distant future. He thinks wow. it's going to come back big time, uh, so that whole supply-demand thing. But we appreciate getting some color here. Julia Fanzaris, Bloomberg News, Oil's Future Reporter, and Kriti Gupta, Bloomberg Markets Correspondent, uh, just helping us break down a little bit this big move up we've seen in energy across the energy complex. But we're, we focus here on WTI crude oil, Brent crude oil. Brent's up 7.4%, uh, $105 per barrel. Uh, so definitely some supply issues. Uh, we know the demand is there as this uh, global economy continues to reopen. The question really is supply. So it'll uh, be interesting to see what we hear out of OPEC tomorrow. <music> 
Another difficult day in the markets here as investors try to digest the, what we're seeing on the geopolitical front, uh, particularly out of Ukraine. Let's get the latest with Megan Horneman, Director of Portfolio Strategist, Strategy at Verdant's Chief Investment Strategist at Verdant's Capital Advisors. Uh, Megan, thanks so much for joining us here. How do you think about your portfolio, your discussions with your portfolio managers as you have to add geopolitical risk to the, a potential wall of worry? Yeah, absolutely. The, the one thing that's the most important is knowing what you own. So not just from the broad asset allocation perspective, making sure you're well diversified. Even though coming into this crisis, no one wanted to touch bonds at all. We continue to advise our clients to at least have some portion of the portfolio in some defensive bond positioning because they will consistently be um, used as a portfolio diversification tool. So in that event, you have to know what you own from the asset class perspective. Then when you delve into your, whether it's regions or sectors, what is your exposure to Russia itself? Um, investing in international equities, specifically on the developed side, has been something that we haven't shied away from. So we're consistently having conversations with our managers, looking at what is the company's um, balance sheet look like? What can they withstand from an energy or commodity increase perspective? Seeing what kind of impact that may have have on future earnings. So are you going into portfolios and selling uh, Russian assets and anything related to Russia? And I, I wonder, I mean, I can understand making that move, um, obviously, but it must be difficult at a time when there probably are few buyers. Am I seeing that uh, correctly? Yeah, unfortunately, we have very little, if any, exposure to Russia when we look at our overall asset allocation. Our managers that we utilize have done that job for us um, before the crisis and then throughout the crisis. So I'm not necessarily concerned about the exposure to Russia Got itself. It. You have to look beyond that now. Um, you know, is there bigger concern in some of the other exposure that we have? The one thing that history tells us is, you had mentioned selling into this. It's very dangerous to sell into geopolitical events when you don't know what kind of change, if any, this is going to have to the fundamental perspective. It's also dangerous if you don't know um, how far the leader is going to take this, which we do not know how, long, how far Putin's going to take this. The most important thing is just to make sure that you're well diversified, that your portfolio over time can withstand short-term periods of volatility. We ultimately do believe that this will end up being short-lived. We don't know how much pain that will occur in the meantime. It's very difficult to watch, not just from a humanitarian perspective, but also watching these daily moves in the market. So we're telling our clients consistently, don't let emotions um, override your long-term risk, your long-term objectives. Be very careful to be selling because once you sell, you're locking in losses, and that can be dangerous for the long run. It's proven to be dangerous for the long run. Stay invested. Have dry powder, which we do and we have had coming into this year, some dry powder to look for opportunities. And just consistently be monitoring what you own. We do believe the managers have made the right decisions within our asset allocation to mitigate some of the exposure that they may have to this crisis. And Meg, we also have uh, a State of the Union address this evening, the first by President Biden. What will you be looking for? What will your fund managers be looking for here? 
Right now, I think the one thing that's working is unity. Um, We've seen that just from the sanction perspective is the the, the Western world forming together and and putting these sanctions on the Russian government one by one, Um, and it is a very unified approach. That right now, especially with the, the just the tragic situations that everybody is looking at on television all day long, we need some unity and confidence. But as far as I think what people will be looking for tonight is, is that you know, bringing the confidence back in the United States, because people are already speculating about what may or may not happen as a result of this with other countries. And I think that's dangerous. Um, so we really have to create a sense of confidence that we are unified with our other counterparts and we um, against what Russia is doing. I think that that will help to some degree. But people will be looking from the energy perspective. Mm. And it's difficult um, at this point for the administration to kind of do a 360 on some of the green energy initiatives. But I think people will be looking on some of the things that the administration can do for the short term that can help alleviate some of the pain at the pump for, for Americans. By the way, just got about uh, 30 seconds left, but when you're looking to diversify, do you look into commodities as well? I mean, typically people and retail investors think of just stocks and bonds, but do you look at gold? Do you look at oil? Do you look at ags? Like, how far do you go? So we will always look at them because they're considered, we, we kind of lump the commodities into what is our alternative exposure. Um, but in, instead of focusing on some of the different you know, commodities, whether it's crude oil, gold, because they're highly volatile, and our clients really have more of an 18 to 24-month time frame. So what we would focus on is other real assets um, that that can give the same types of characteristics in the, in given our expectation for economic growth. So thinking about things like real estate or infrastructure, these are some areas of the market that we would focus on now. I I think it's it is a very um, risky game to be entering into oil now specifically yep. because people will be doing it on a speculation trade on what's going on overseas. Right. All right, Megan, thank you so much for joining us, giving uh, a couple of minutes of your time. We appreciate it, Megan Horneman. Uh, she is a chief investment strategist at Verdant's Capital Advisors. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. We're running on a financial system that's running on old technology. We're seeing house prices reach fresh record highs. What unfolds in midterms, we will no doubt see again in the next presidential election. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Another really cool and impressive Big Take story today out on the terminal and on Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. This one, this time Bloomberg Opinion measured President Biden's presidency across 14 metrics. And we have uh, the reporter here that focused on the supply chain because that's one of our favorite topics here on Bloomberg Markets. Brooke Sutherland, she's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us here live I say live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. So after a couple of years of call-ins, we got Brooke back uh, in the studio. Brooke, you got to fix a supply chain for us. It's killing us. Where are we right now when you step back and, and we take a look at the global supply chain? Are we any closer to fixing it? We are, but I will say that nothing is moving as quickly as anybody would like, uh, least of all CEOs, but certainly right. also or individuals. Or President Biden. Yes, or President Biden. Um, so we, I mean, I will say there's been incremental 
positive commentary coming out of industrial CEOs, where they are seeing some improvements on things, whether it be resins. Uh, you know, GM is saying they'll have enough semiconductors to significantly ramp up auto production this year. Rockwell Automation is also seeing some improvements in semiconductors. So there is progress, but it, it's taking a long time. And I think what the result is, is then you have a lot of these industrial companies banking on a significantly better environment in the back half of the year. That tends to make investors very nervous. These back-end weighted forecasts have a way of not always playing out like we all hoped they might. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's just, it's slow. Yep. And people are well, I should point out to people that, you're, you know, in your day job, what you do every day is, is for Bloomberg Opinion is cover the industrial sector of America, the heartland of America, the really cool companies. That's why we're talking about some of these companies. But the, the auto companies, they were the kind of the first place where consumers saw, oh boy, we've got a problem out there. And I think that's where consumers are really looking to see when auto production does in fact ramp up. Right. And, you know, the hope is this year yep. that we're going to see some big improvements in volumes. But again, I mean, I think it's anybody's guess how that actually plays out. And you know, the answer to the semiconductor problem particularly is very intractable. The way you solve mm. it is by adding significant amounts of new supply. You cannot do that overnight. So there's a huge wave of investment underway just in the US alone to build new semiconductor plants, but this takes years. It, it takes, takes a long time. I just called yesterday the GMC, my dealer up in Westchester, Empire. Um, Buick GMC and she said uh, haven't seen a Yukon in months here and if we do get one it's not going to have uh, uh, might not have blind spot um, detection it might not have adaptive cruise control it might not have heated and ventilated seats because the chips just aren't there for those things I'm also hearing about Delivery issues, Barry Ritholtz uh, just had a, um, a Toyota FJ40 shipped up from Columbia, and it sat in customs for five weeks. This is the kind of thing that the president can actually impact. Is he doing stuff like that at the borders? Is he encouraging people to onshore um, production? You know, what is the administration doing in terms of actions now to try and get it going again? Sure. I mean, on the semiconductor front, just one point. So the manufacturers are also redesigning their products to get around um, some of these issues mm -hmm. where, you know, you have shortages of one chip, but more of a supply of others. And so they're retrofitting them. So it's not just cars. But to your point, I mean, it is actually very hard for the Biden administration to make a huge difference in the supply chain because so much of this is controlled by private entities and not just, you know, a handful of private entities, but an entire system that historically has not always had the best track record of talking to each other. So whether that's manufacturers, whether that's railroads, trucking companies, port operators, the actual workers on the docks, uh, warehouses. So what the Biden administration has said is they are trying to be a deal broker. They want to bring these different parties to the table. They want to make sure that those lines of communication are open. Now, we are seeing a little bit of progress in the ports, specifically those West Coast ports, Los Angeles and Long Beach, where you know there's been such a long backlog mm -hmm. of ships that yep. has gotten incrementally better. We are still a long way away from normal operating conditions in those ports. Um, and then longer term, you know, what they would like to do is make investments in infrastructure. And, you know, a huge portion of that goes to the ports in terms of making our existing setup much better suited to handle the kind of cargo demand that we're seeing. Um, you know, there's a lot that could be done uh, in terms of automation, in terms of, you know, just rearranging how this uh, logistical apparatus works for the ships that we have in our time. But again, you know, back to the point about the semiconductor plants, those are not things that you can do overnight. Are we going to onshore anything of, of note? Your, your industrial America, are we going to onshore anything? 
So I think this is happening to some degree. And you've seen companies uh, like Snyder say, look, we're going to add some manufacturing capacity to support the high levels of demand. Um, you know, I talked to the automation companies like Siemens and Rockwell, which, of course, would be big beneficiaries of yep. any onshoring movement because you're not going to do it to hire a ton of American workers. You're going to do it if you can make the automation investment to make all of the economics work. So I think we are seeing this particularly lower down yep. the supply chain. So not necessarily the big name brand right. manufacturers that we know, but their suppliers. I want to see a big fab plant built right in the middle. Maybe Columbus, Ohio, right, right in the middle They're of the country. They're doing that. They're building tons of semiconductor that's right. plants. Okay, yeah, so. we need that. They, in the great state of Ohio. In the great state of Ohio. And electric vehicles is the other big the one. the Ohio State University. Brooke Sullivan, thanks so much for joining us. She's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You can read all this cool big take stuff. Bloomberg.com slash Big Take or NI space Big Take Go on the terminal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.